I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. I'm Aaron Gullius. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, not too much snark, no belief, no debunking. This is Encounter 48. Watch this, don't watch that. We are drifting into topical territory with this episode, as there have been in the last year or so a number of high-profile documentaries released that deal in some way with the flying saucer topic. Some are high-profile because of genuine chatter and buzz about how great they are. Others have a high profile because a few loud voices insist they are, as is true with every other sector of entertainment. But UFO documentaries aren't new. In fact, they're just about as old as the phenomenon itself. And this is unsurprising, as the flying saucer phenomenon came about at the same time as television and during the golden age of informational and educational films that could be used as content on the hundreds of TV stations that were springing up around the U.S., all of which needed programming. So today, we're going to look at a number of flying saucer and flying saucer-related documentaries. But first, some parameters. First, no long-form television series. These are all standalone films, programs, or installments in an anthology. Now, one that we're going to look at today is is sort of a limited series, but I think it still fits that broad requirement. Second, no fiction. Okay, let me rephrase that. Nothing presented explicitly as fiction. We'll save that for another time because it's a whole different thing. Until we do... Go back into the archives and check out Encounter 502, where we looked at the first season of The X-Files. Next, a wide audience. In many, but not all cases, I've tilted things toward works aimed at the widest possible audience. This was my way around having to look at all of those 10 DVD sets of horrible UFO shows that you could get at the mall for like three bucks back in the day. Also, if something was produced solely for YouTube by someone who only ever produces stuff for YouTube, I ignored it because that way people aren't going to say, well, UFO Jimmy had a great little sort of 10-minute UFO YouTube rant about the truth or something. There's exceptions to this, of course. In cases where the work in question earned it, uh, for example, and because the best stuff isn't always aimed at a wide audience. Finally, this isn't everything. Like our Read These Books episodes, there will be more of these. So if your favorite or least favorite isn't discussed, don't worry, I will get to it at some point. Now, the rating system. Good and bad are too broad. A star system doesn't really give you a sense of why something is good or bad. So here are the ratings I'll be using, from my highest recommendation to my lowest. And I I like this so much that I'll probably be using it for more things from here on out. First, crucial. You need to watch or read this if you haven't, and it represents a significant discussion of an important topic. It may or may not be entertaining, but it's important for a full understanding of the topic. Next is good. Watch it. These are entertaining, well-made, and insightful. 
They may be a step or two below crucial because of historical significance, but don't let that deter you. Next, Goofy. Good material for mockery, but still worth checking out overall for some reason or another. Next, not great, but boring. Significant flaws and constructed in such a way as to put you to sleep. Not bad, not great, but significant. Not great, but a significant work in its own right. Treat it like homework rather than entertainment, and you should be able to cope. And finally, just bad. Significant flaws, problems, annoyances, these can be safely avoided. These are, of course, just my opinions on these works, and as we get started, I trust you will at least, even if you disagree, see how my views on them are at least consistent with everything else I've had an opinion about before on the show. For works that are no longer commercially available, I have some clips. Apologies ahead of time for the audio quality. Lo-fi videos consisting of camcorder footage of someone's television that is then posted in a low bitrate on YouTube don't really score in the pristine crispness category. So let's get started. We will be going chronologically through this batch of documentaries. So, Back in 1997, MSNBC was only a year old and had nothing to broadcast. The solution was Time and Again, presented by Jane Pauley. The show consisted of old NBC news and documentary footage chopped up and repackaged with Pauley providing updated commentary and information. One installment of Time and Again presented portions of the 1974 NBC documentary UFOs Do You Believe?, which I haven't yet been able to find in its original form, which is odd because we have the internet and I thought everything was out there, but I haven't found it yet. So the UFOs Do You Believe program is typical of network news UFO programs with commentary from experiencers, ufologists, and skeptical excerpts. This particular film is notable for featuring both a young Stanton T. Friedman, who actually shows up in every UFO documentary of note between like 1970 and today. But it also has some some stuff from Carl Sagan, astronomer Carl Sagan, the one who did the good version of Cosmos from back in the day. We also hear from the heads of various UFO investigation groups, including APRO's Coral Lorenzen. Here we have objects which are obviously beyond our um, technology flying around the skies, occasionally landing, things or entities getting out of them, taking soil samples and vegetable samples, sometimes rabbits or something, whatever they get their hands on. We ought to know who they are, where they're from, and why they're here. Honestly, I think my imitation of Coral Lorenzen from back in our first uh, first few episodes a couple years ago holds up really well when you hear her real voice. Anyway, this was an interesting time for ufology. The Condon Report had recommended that the Air Force not waste resources on UFO reporting, which in a weird way, I think, opened the doors wider for private investigation organizations to continue and new ones to emerge. Here, for example, we see MUFON getting some attention along the venerable sticks-in-the-mud 
of NICAP. And there's so much to enjoy in this documentary. You see J. Allen Hynek talking to witnesses. There's a great shot of him sitting on a curb with a little kid, just having a conversation. You see interview footage with uh, Parker and Hickson talking about their bizarre encounter in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Best of all, you have this line from Jane Pauley, which I'm going to just have to drop in wherever appropriate in every episode in the future. UFO might just as well stand for unprecedented financial opportunity. And that's the moment where I fell in love with Jane Pauley. This gets a good rating for its thorough approach as well as the loads of archival footage and general historical value. If I were to see the original 1974 iteration, it might qualify for crucial. If I find it, I'll let you know. This is, for the moment, available online. Now, Overlords of the UFO is, the caption states, a scientific news documentary. Well then, there is one question that the show aims to answer. Not one world public agency or scientific group has even offered a partial solution to this most amazing mystery of all time. No public authority has told us who are the overlords of the UFO. And why are they here, right now, at this time? There is no Air Force defending any portion of this planet that can truthfully deny that the following documented incidents did take place and that similar incidents are taking place almost every day somewhere in the world. No Air Force can deny that these events are not taking place. Proving a negative 101. So, in this film, there are overviews of some encounter and abduction incidents, such as the Pascagoula case, which was at that point in 1976, very recent. And as is customary for any documentary from this time, Stanton T. Friedman makes an appearance. So, where do UFOs come from? One answer presented in the film is outer space, of course. But Overlords of the UFO addresses another possibility. But the UFOs could also be from an invisible dimension, in the invisible portion of the universe, which our science cannot easily detect. Perhaps one or possibly both of these concepts will one day be the explanation of the origin of the UFO. They could be from space, or they could be from another dimension, or they could be from both. Who knows? So, like I said, there's a number of cases and phenomena discussed here, including sea-based UFOs, the Travis Walton abduction case, cattle mutilations, orgone energy, and almost everything else. And there's almost no documentation or evidence provided. It jumps from potential solution to potential case to potential solution with no organization, no anything. It's very disjointed. It's very bizarre. Everything is stated as a potential fact. Uh, it's 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 artless and charming all at the same time and one of the things that makes the film so much fun is the terrible nature of the special effects that are used to represent the various encounters sort of animation type things so who are the overlords of the ufo well presenter w gordon allen who was behind the whole thing had written a book in 1959 called Spacecraft from Beyond Three Dimensions. So basically, what you do is you combine the earlier dimension idea we heard in that first clip, 
you take the mysticism of Rudolf Steiner and throw in random ideas from Borderland Science Research Associates newsletters from the 1950s, and you have your answer. Ethereans. Yes, the Ethereans are back. So here's Alan at the end of the show trying to explain all of these things. This gets a rating of Goofy, and it's on YouTube for the moment, with a title that proclaims it to be banned, which just adds to the fun. Moving into the 1980s. In 1988, the public was treated to UFO Cover-Up Live, a two-hour television special. Behind the scenes was Tracy Torme, who'd been involved with the alien abduction film Fire from the Sky, and, more importantly to me, responsible for the only really good episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation during its first two seasons. It was hosted by Mike Farrell, the guy whose name I can never remember from MASH, the one who wasn't Hawkeye and the one who wasn't Trapper John. Somebody will tell me his name on Twitter, I assume. So, Mike Farrell's hosting it, and it has, at the beginning, some science stuff about how aliens may exist and what kinds of technology could be possible that would allow for long-range space travel. But honestly, nobody cares about that. The cool stuff comes when we get to the cover-up part of things, with Bill Moore and Jamie Chanderay talking about the MJ-12 papers that proved a secret government cabal was managing the UFO situation. As evidence, Moore and Chanderay presented two intelligence operatives, Falcon and Condor. Falcon was Richard Doty. However, Falcon was not the real Condor, the real intelligence man with the codename of Falcon. But that's a story for another episode. Condor was supposedly, apparently, Robert Collins, a former Air Force officer stationed with Doty at Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico. These figures appeared at various points to offer their perspective on various things like Project Blue Book and the Cash Landrum incident, another episode that is in the hopper for down the road. 
here's Falcon talking about MJ-12. MJ-12 functions as a policy-making group relating to extraterrestrial activities and contacts and UFO activities within the United States. They make the policy, obtain presidential approval, and then field activities implement the policies. And here he is talking about the infrastructure of MJ-12 and the secret government. MJ-12 was a group of people within the, the government. MJ-12 was created by President Truman in the early 50s. And their job was to investigate, keep track of information pertaining to UFOs. Part of their job was scientific advancements. But uh, their primary purpose was to keep track of the information coming in on UFOs and to analyze the information, both uh, scientifically and in a way that would advance our technology. There are government officials and elected officials that are automatically briefed the existence of the MJ-12 activities. These officials include the president, the vice president, as elected officials, the director of central intelligence, and the director of the National Security Agency. The MJ-12 policy is headquartered at the Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C. The United States Navy has the primary operational responsibilities of field activities relating to the MJ-12 policies. All information gathered in the field, not necessarily by Navy personnel, is transmitted to the Navy for analysis. Interestingly, some observers have pointed out a leak of classified information in this documentary, potentially, that has nothing to do with flying saucers. During that Falcon speech we just heard, on the screen appears a flowchart showing the secret government, and one of the departments listed under the Defense Intelligence Agency is a parapsychological research unit, and this could very well refer to Project Stargate, the remote viewing operation that the Defense Department was running. The thing is, Stargate wasn't declassified until 1995, so that's a little sort of leak that, uh, that I find very interesting. UFO cover-up live hovers between a couple different ratings. It's, uh, not, it's not good, but it's significant due to the appearance of Falcon and Condor and placing the notion of these, these government agents and MJ-12 in the public consciousness. It's goofy, too, for the live aspect. Um, for example, this Mean Gene wrestling hotline-style voting about people's UFO experiences may be one of my favorite things ever. Now, there is a nominal charge of $1 on your phone bill for each call to our 900 number. The phones are active only in the United States and Canada from 8 p.m. Friday, October 14th through 1 a.m. Saturday, October 15th, Eastern Daylight Time. So, if you've had a close encounter of the first kind, please call 1-900-400-6181. Close encounters of the second kind, call 1-900-400-6182. If you've experienced a close encounter of the third kind, please call 1-900-400-6183. 
That's only if you've had a third kind encounter, though, not if you've just seen the movie. If you had a close encounter of the fourth kind and you are back, we're anxious to hear from you. Please call 1-900-400-6184. Finally, if you have never had an encounter with an unidentified flying object, please call 1-900-400-6185. If you haven't had an encounter with a UFO and would like to, that's a long-distance call, and I don't have the number. Mike Farrell, you fraud. Um, I would love to know what the results of that poll were. I haven't looked for it. And I would really love to know how much money they made off this, especially with the dollar per call option if you've never seen a UFO. That is a stroke of genius. My favorite thing, my, well, one of my favorite things about this as well is, and it doesn't really come across here too well, but the overpunctuated nature of the title. It's UFO cover-up with cover-up being hyphenated question mark, live, exclamation point. So UFO cover-up, live. So that's that's kind of how it goes. So check it out. It's, uh, it's currently still up on YouTube, and I can't imagine anybody caring enough to have it taken down. Robert Stone's 1992 documentary, Farewell Good Brothers, is now out of print. It was originally released on VHS and in the early 21st century on DVD. It was aired on the Discovery Channel as part of their American Independent Filmmaker series and also aired on the UK on Channel 4. For a preview, here's the commercial for how to order it on videotape. One in four Americans believe human contact with alien creatures has actually occurred. If you're among the many, now meet the people who've met the aliens. I want the public to know that uh, we definitely did see this uh, flying saucer. The Discovery Channel presents Farewell, Good Brothers. It's the kind of movie that gets you thinking. I'm totally convinced that there is a conspiracy. Offbeat, irreverent, you'll enter the strange world of mysterious government conspiracies and unbelievably close encounters. How many trips have you made out of space? Well, I'd say 350 or more if i ever see any of these other aliens director robert stone's ufo masterpiece is the cult film of the 90s if you believe in close encounters get farewell good brothers to order your gift copy of this ufo classic for only 29.95 call 1-800-628-3100 with your credit card ready what a great movie it's an excellent look at some of the most significant contactees Oddly enough, the film's attention is focused on contactees that we haven't covered here on the show yet, such as Howard Menger, Bob Short, George King, and Frank Strangis. The film consists largely of interviews with these contactees, sometimes juxtaposed with suitably goofy period footage. My favorite is a very odd scene of Santa Claus exiting a UFO as part of some kind of holiday parade. There's a good mix in the film of the contactees' individual tales, and the broader story of the UFO phenomenon, including newsreel footage and things like that. It's not, if, if it's not affectionate, at least it's sincere, and there's a degree of sympathy in the presentation. As has always been the case, no one has ever had to make contactees look crazy. They do the job well enough themselves. Therefore, Farewell Good Brothers doesn't drift into sort of mean-spirited territory. One of the things, another thing I think the film does well is set the world of the contactees within the context of the very different ufological world of the early 1990s. So, for example, here's Howard and Connie Menger 
talking about the grays, which is a level of weirdness that I never thought I'd experience, but it's in this film. I believe the ones I talk to. And if I ever see any of these other aliens with their big eyes and their evolutionary big brains and the, the process... <laughs> and their claw-like They better watch out. Well, regardless of their technology, because I have a little technology myself. So that's all I can say about that. What do you have to say, Connie? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is, many people have seen that, and they all... Uh, now let them come around here. Let them come around here. They all describe the same type, and, and it... Uh, well, you know, uh, you can manufacture, and you could produce right. something like you that. Could. It could be robotics. Who knows? You could. That's right. <laughs> it, it's just that I don't discount what those people are yeah. saying. They are probably actually seeing these things. But my question is, what are they? How are they produced, and where do they come from? There's something I must interject, Connie. Those are perfect questions, which have to be answered. There's something I must say. I forgot what it was. <laughs> ah, the maniacal laughter of the flying saucer contactee. Being a film from the early 90s, it does go into the Roswell crash and supposed cover-up, which I feel takes away from the broader contactee story, but it felt like more of a detour than the main focus. There are hints of the men in black and discussion of the suppression of flying saucer knowledge as well. One complaint, and, and probably the only substantive one I have, is that I would have liked some consistent use of captions to tell me who is actually talking, particularly in regard to the archival footage, because there's some people I don't recognize, and I would love to find out more about them, but I'm never told who they are. Despite that small complaint, and given my predilection for contactees, it should not surprise you that I rate Farewell Good Brothers as a crucial piece of viewing. Like I said, it's out of print. It is circulating on the internet, but um, the, uh, the the creator of the film is on Twitter. So if you could all sort of hit him up for a new sort of Blu-ray release of this, that would be cool. So back in 1989, a fellow named Bob Lazar appeared on the scene claiming to work at a place called S4 near the now fabled Area 51, on technology and science that was beyond human capacity to create. In particular, he worked with a substance called Element 115, and, and he appeared on news programs with the story broken by Las Vegas reporter George Knapp. Lazar's story was interesting, and there seems to be some indication that he worked where he said he did on something. But there were some problems. The biggest one being he could not substantiate any of his educational credentials, either from MIT or Caltech, where he said he attended. Stanton Friedman, hardly a dream-crushing skeptic, investigated and found that there was no evidence that Lazar had attended the schools he said he did. Lazar faded from the scene after a few years. But last year, in 2018, a new film from the exhaustively named Jeremy Kenyon Lockyer Corbell, entitled Bob Lazar, UFOs in Area 51, emerged in a fit of fanfare that proclaimed it would blow the lid off the UFO mystery. On the website, we are told that, quote, the reason you know about Area 51 is because Lazar came forward and told you about it, and that, quote, his disclosures have turned his life upside down and he has tried to stay out of the spotlight, end quote. Now, that was the first point at which I began to wonder what was up, because Lazar hasn't really stayed out of the spotlight. He's appeared on Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell and George Knapp numerous times. If you're keeping track, tri prior to appearing in 2018 to promote the film, 
Lazar appeared in 1997, 2002, 2003, 2006, 2009, and 2014. Hardly the behavior of one trying to stay out of the spotlight. But you don't really sell a documentary about a guy coming forward with the story he has been telling for a long time if you say, and now, the top secret, scary, sinister story that has been told numerous times, but you probably haven't heard it because it was only on the radio and not on iTunes. That doesn't really work. The film itself presents Lazar's story, as well as testimony from his wife and mother who believe his story, who believe that story. I'm as shocked as you are. George Knapp appears, often in interminable scenes where he talks to Corbell over the phone. If you want the cinematic dynamite of watching a guy sitting at a desk listening to a voice coming out of his iPhone, this film is for you. There is sporadic narration, often garbled and nearly always confusing, bordering on dumb, from actor Mickey Rourke. Why? Who knows? There is some interesting stuff. There's a raid on Lazar's place, Lazar's place rather, by various federal agencies and it's presented as darkly sinister. And it might be if Lazar didn't have a history of getting raided for having various illegal substances related to his fireworks hobby. But there might be something to it. I don't know because the film didn't spend a lot of time on it. Worst of all for me was the handling of the questions about Lazar's schooling. We're told it doesn't matter because there's other evidence that other stuff Lazar did, did happen. People who want to know the truth about why Lazar apparently has consistently lied about his education are, quote, missing the point. And, George Knapp says, if they were to get evidence of those claims, they would, quote, find something else to bitch about, end quote. In the end, I get the impression that Lazar believes his story, but I'm given no reason why I should believe it, Something happened to Lazar, and he did do work for the government, but I'm not sure it's what he thinks it was. Was Lazar used to leak disinformation about Area 51? What about his comments back in the 90s and 80s about not remembering traveling to the S-4 site and back again? About medical treatment he received there? That's what the documentary could have focused on, but it didn't. Corbell's catchphrase or tagline or whatever is, Weaponize your curiosity. Well, I have. I'm curious about the truth underlying Lazar's claims. I'm curious about the motives of those who let him blab about top-secret installations on the television back in 1989. I'm curious as to why the film doesn't discuss Bill Cooper's claim that Lazar was running a meth lab out of his house. My curiosity is weaponized. The film just didn't satisfy it. In the end, it's just bad, mostly because there's space for a good, critical, and entertaining film about Lazar, and this is a massive missed opportunity. The film is available for rental or purchase everywhere you find digital movies to rent or purchase, and there's some links in the show notes. I will note that the iTunes version is supposed to have like 90 minutes of extras as part of the package. We will end on a high note. In 2019, Hellier is a five-part documentary series produced by Greg Newkirk and Dana Newkirk, directed by Carl Pfeiffer and co-produced by Connor Randall. And it's the newest of the works I'm discussing. It just appeared in January 2019, and it is something. Since it's so current, I don't want to spoil too much because I want you to go watch it. But the work, five or so hours in total, is more about high strangeness than UFOs, than just UFOs, but the UFO connections are there. 
And as we've seen over the past couple of years, the lines between UFOs and spirits and monsters are highly permeable. This is a well-produced, creepy film that delves into ufological topics I never thought I'd see at a documentary aimed at a broad paranormal audience. Indrid Cold appears, not appears, but you know, as does a very strange book that we may cover in the future if I can ever figure it out. Alan Greenfield's Secret Cipher of the Ufonauts. Mysterious and sinister messages, weirdness in Appalachia, including strange goblin-like creatures, and more synchronicities and meaningful coincidences than you can shake a stick at. They're all over this. these five episodes of this documentary sort of serial. And if you enjoyed Saucer Life episodes on Gray Barker and John Keel, you will like this. If you're one of those, you got your ghost hunting in my ufology gross types, or you know someone who is, check out Hellier on YouTube, Amazon Prime, or at hellier.tv. Links are in the show notes. And kudos to Planet Weird for releasing Hellier for free viewing and even as high-quality downloads that you can just sort of put on your media streaming uh, device or whatever. I rate Hellier good. A second installment is planned, apparently, which would certainly, could certainly, rather, move it into the rarefied air of crucial. But I'm hesitant to do so now with the story still being told, but you should check it out. So there you have it. Half a dozen things to watch from across the good to bad spectrum. Out of all of these, since Hellier is probably the easiest to get your hands on at the moment, I recommend starting with that. Next time, and it's been a while since we've done this, we're going to be looking at some periodicals with the 70s zine scene. I'm hoping to find some reactions to the NBC documentary we discussed. In the show notes are links to the shows discussed in this episode. Some are available for purchase, some never were or no longer are. Where there's a legitimate link, we provide one. Otherwise, there are links to versions we, that have found their way online. The Saucer Life, Encounter 48, was written and produced by me, Aaron Gullius, and is a Chizo Media production. You can explore the archives at saucerlife.com, and you can follow along on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life, and subscribe to the Saucer Life everywhere you find podcasts. Till next time, keep watching the television, because the television is watching you.